Father, thank you for the energy and for the interest and for the participation of many who come regularly here, Father, to be a part of this teaching. We thank you for that gift of, of their presence and of their heart to learn, for it makes possible to teach, for your word to be proclaimed, for your work to be done in hearts. And I thank you, Father, for the privilege that it is to be a part of that work. And tonight we ask specifically as we look at your word, that Christ would be magnified by the pages of the Scripture before us, that His work would be first and foremost in our hearts and our minds, His work on our behalf as a sacrifice for our sin. We ask as well, Father, that the details of the Exodus itself, of Your work through the nation of Israel, would remind us of the work You do in all men's lives to cause them to come out of sin, to walk with You, to follow in obedience. We ask for those lessons to be made real in our hearts as well tonight. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. At the start of this chapter, we entered the third division of the book of Exodus. In this third division, we're looking at God's redemption of His people through the Passover. And that story runs all the way into chapter 13, actually. So we, last week, we studied the details of the Passover judgment, which included looking for all the many ways in which it was a picture or sign of Christ and a memorial of Christ's death on the cross. And then at the end of the lesson, we had reached the point where the nation was no longer enslaved. Pharaoh said, you're free to go. And they are now ready to leave the land. Not only are they leaving behind slavery, they're also leaving behind poverty. We studied last week that they leave a rich nation because they plundered the Egyptians, which was something God said they would do. And now at this point in the text, at about verse 40, in chapter 12, now they're beginning to embark on a rather iconic journey, one that we've all heard about, which has been memorialized in, in various ways, not least of which is our friend Charlton. And this is now the early stage of the Exodus. Last week, as we finished, there was a comment made at the end of chapter 12 about the beginnings of this Exodus. Now, when I say the beginnings, I mean truly just the first movement. They went from their home in Ramses, which is where they've worked as slaves. We studied that earlier. And they moved to a place called Succoth, which sits right on the edge of the borders of Egypt. Or at least, let's say, on the edge of the civilized area of Egypt. They've begun to move out of the land, but they haven't made it there yet. And at this point, as they begin to leave Egypt, they become a nation unlike anything they've experienced in the past. Remember, they entered Egypt as a family. They grew in Egypt as a slave population. They're leaving Egypt now as a nation, really for the first time in the true sense of the word. And they leave under the charge of the Lord himself as he leads them forth. So we're going to set up tonight that departure with some interesting things that I think you're going to find worth our time. And then next week, we're going to get into the Exodus proper as they begin that movement. And as you know already, it culminates with a crossing of the Red Sea that is arguably one of the most famous things in the entire Bible, even to the people who don't know the Bible. And we're going to talk at that point next week about where that crossing actually occurs. It's going to be presented as part of a video that accompanies the teaching I'm going to do. So I'm just giving you the heads up. I don't want you to miss it if you can avoid it. The video will not be on the website. So you'll only see it if you come here. So tonight we're at chapter 12, verse 40. Let's begin there tonight. Now, the time that the sons of Israel lived in Egypt was 430 years. And at the end of 430 years, to the very day, all the hosts of the Lord went out from the land of Egypt. 
Moses reports that the nation of Israel lived in Egypt for 430 years. I said, I think, on a couple of occasions when we started this course, that there are at least two major points from the book of Exodus that are widely misunderstood, widely misinterpreted. And this is one of them. So tonight is a night when we need to spend some time understanding just how long the nation of Israel was in the land of Egypt. And you're looking at the verses on the screen and you're asking yourself, it doesn't look that complicated. Well, give me a moment. After that 430 years, as it states here, to the very day, we're told, all the hosts of the Lord went out from Egypt. God's sovereignty is clearly evident in Moses' statement. Wouldn't you agree? God has orchestrated events so that the day of their departure matched perfectly some day 430 years earlier. But the question is, what day? The synchronicity here is even more remarkable than it may seem at first because of what that previous day refers to. And in order to understand that, to see how remarkable this statement is, that this event occurred exactly to the day 430 years later, to see how remarkable that is, we're going to have to take some time here to take a close look at this statement and other statements in Scripture that relate to this time and understand them to the best of our ability. We're going to rely extensively on the slides tonight in order to communicate this. In fact, it's almost impossible for me to explain this properly without visuals. And so I say that as well for the sake of those who would listen to this later. Make sure you have the visuals. Go to the website and download the visuals that accompany this lesson. First, let's consider Paul's commentary on this same timeline, which he provides in his letter to the Galatians. Paul writes in Galatians 3.16, Now the promises were spoken to Abraham and to his seed. He does not say, and to seeds, as referring to many, but rather to one and to your seed, that is, Christ. What I am saying is this. The law, which came 430 years later, does not invalidate a covenant previously ratified by God so as to nullify the promise. For if the inheritance is based on law, it is no longer based on a promise, but God granted it to Abraham by means of a promise. So Paul uses what I'm going to call anchors or mile markers, if you will, in a timeline to anchor this 430 year period that he's speaking about. This is the same 430 year period that the book of Exodus was referring to in Exodus 12. One of the anchors he gives is the giving of the covenant to Abraham when he left Ur and entered Canaan, as God asked him to do. We call this the Abrahamic covenant. So one anchor on this timeline is the anchor of the Abrahamic covenant. The other anchor, Paul says, is the giving of the law at Mount Sinai, which happens in the same year as the nation of Israel's departure from Egypt. So it's the same year as Exodus 12. So you have these two anchors. Between these two anchors, you have 430 years. If we place that timeline on top of the earlier timeline of Exodus 12, we're going to immediately find a contradiction because Exodus 12 seems to say that the time that Israel was in Egypt was 430 years. But what Paul says in Galatians, that same 430 years, he dates from Abraham's covenant to the leaving 
from Egypt to the point of receiving the law. Both of those obviously cannot be true. Have I lost anybody yet? So we have a dilemma to resolve, don't we? But it gets worse. When we look at the moment when Abraham received the covenant in Genesis 15, here's what the Lord says. God said to Abram, know for certain that your descendants will be strangers in a land that is not theirs, where they will be enslaved and oppressed 400 years. So the Lord's testimony to Abram seems to say that his descendants would be in Egypt for 400 years. Okay, so let's overlay that timeline on top of the others. We find a third contradiction. It doesn't agree with either of the other two. Stephen, by the way, repeats this same number because he quotes in his uh, monologue in, in Acts chapter 7, he quotes from this same place in Genesis 15. So it's no surprise he uses the same number. So when Acts 7 verse 6 is spoken by Stephen, he says, but God spoke to this effect that his, meaning Abraham's, descendants would be aliens in a foreign land and that they would be enslaved and mistreated for 400 years. Well, he's quoting Genesis 15. So now the period of time in Egypt is 400 years or so, it would seem. Now we have three different statements to reconcile. But it gets worse. In the same giving of the covenant in chapter 15 of Genesis, the Lord reveals to Abraham that his descendants will eventually return to the land. And when he says that, he says the return will be after four generations. The four generations that experienced the time in Egypt began with the generation that entered, which was Jacob and all his sons who were alive when they entered into Egypt. So we can trace the four generations through any of those sons, but we're going to pick one that's very easy to trace because his genealogy is captured in three different places in Scripture, including Exodus. And that's the tracing of Levi. Now, you remember why Levi is traced in Exodus? Because from Levi, you get Kohath. From Kohath, you get Amram, and from Amram you get Moses. Four generations in the time that they lived in the land of Egypt. We can trace those generations. We can compare what Exodus says with 1 Chronicles 6, 1 Chronicles 23, in which these same genealogies are repeated. And using those genealogies, we find that only these four people connect the entire time they spent in Egypt, and under even the most generous estimates of age, you cannot cover 400 years, much less 430 years, with just these people. Even the most generous estimate falls hundreds of years short. So four generations places an upper limit on how long the nation could live in Egypt. And that upper limit is far less than 400 years. In fact, it's probably about half that. So now we have a fourth discrepancy to reconcile because now I've got four generations that just don't add up to the time required. But it gets worse. While we can't accurately determine the length of time between the generations that were in Egypt, I can't actually give you the ages here perfectly, but I can perfectly accurately date the time between generations before they entered in to Egypt, because I only have to know the ages of Abraham, Isaac and Jacob. And their ages are given explicitly in Genesis. Abraham received the promise of the covenant when he was how old? A hundred. It was 25 more years before Isaac was born. 
It was then 60 years later that Jacob was born. And it was then 130 years when Jacob entered the land. You can see Jacob was 130 when he entered the land. Well, if you take 25 plus 60 plus 130, how much time do you get between Abraham, Isaac and Jacob? 215 years. So there were 215 years without a doubt between the time of Abraham's covenant and the time that Israel entered Egypt. So now we have a fifth data point to reconcile, and I think we had better stop looking before we find any more. Now, as you might imagine, people who doubt the Bible's authority and accuracy and who want to discredit it will point to these apparent contradictions as proof of the Bible's untrustworthiness, and many have done so. But as I think you're going to soon see, such claims are merely proof that the accuser is ignorant of Scripture and lacks the counsel of the Holy Spirit. And even after we reconcile this contradiction tonight, you'll find others, apparent contradictions elsewhere, or someone may raise one for you. I want you to remember tonight when you think about those moments, because we may not always be able to solve these riddles of Scripture in the moment when they are presented to us and we are challenged by them. But we can rest assured that the riddles have solutions and the Lord will shame all of his accusers in the day of his glory. The fact that we can't always solve the riddles for ourselves doesn't mean there aren't solutions to them. Faith requires that we know that the Bible is inerrant because we know the one who wrote it is inerrant. Let's start to solve this riddle by simply working from the things that we know are unshakable and without debate. And there are two things on this list that you cannot deny, cannot shake. The 430 years that Paul gives in Galatians is plainly stated and incontrovertible. Paul says in Galatians clearly that the time between these two covenants was 430 years. And we know the dates of these two covenants. Everything else, therefore, must fit within that 430-year period. Secondly, the age of the patriarchs is 215 years. This, again, is not something we can debate. The 215 years of the lives of the patriarchs is incontrovertible from Scripture. So if you look at these two side by side, there is something very interesting that pops out from the data, right? What do you notice about that? 430 minus 215. I'm doing the math here for the Aggies in the room, but I just think 430 minus 215 is 215. That kind of symmetry just looks like God, doesn't it? Genesis 47 says 215 years for the patriarchs. Paul says the total was 430. Now my math is starting to line up. So if the math works, then I must agree that the second half is also 215 years. Well, guess what? That solves my generations problem because that matches to what I would expect for the four generations that lived in the land. The next thing we want to revisit is where we started tonight, Exodus 12. Let's take a second look at this first. Sometimes just taking another look at the text will bring something out that you don't notice the first time. Verse 40, now the time that the sons of Israel lived in Egypt was 430 years. And at the end of 430 years, to the very day, all the hosts of the Lord went out from the land of Egypt. Now, in this case, looking at it a second time doesn't help. <laughs> In my Bible, and I'm quoting here from the NASB, the New American Standard, in my Bible we read that the sons of Israel lived in Egypt 430 years. We've already established conclusively that Israel could not have lived in Egypt for more than 215 years. 
You can't get around that at this point. Because if the patriarchs live for 215 of the 430, there isn't enough time left to say that they lived in the land for 430. We're up against a line we can't cross. So where do I go to reconcile this? Well, as it turns out, the answer comes from a closer examination, not of the English text, but of the Hebrew text. And in this case, we have to go back to one of the earliest translations of the Hebrew Bible from Hebrew to Greek, which is the Septuagint. If I look at this same passage in the Septuagint, this is the version of the Bible or of the Old Testament that was translated by Jewish leadership. The Septuagint was translated by 70 Jewish men. That's why we call it the Septuagint. It means the 70. And it is considered one of the most authoritative versions of the Old Testament because it was translated by Jews centuries before Christ. And so it's considered to be one of the more authoritative sources. When we look at it, here's what we find. And the sojourning of the children of Israel while they sojourned in the land of Egypt and the land of Canaan was 430 years. You notice the distinction between verse 40 in the English and verse 40 in the older translation. What we're looking at here is a problem that is not common, but does happen. English translations are the changing of language from those manuscripts. And those manuscripts themselves are copies of copies of copies of copies. In looking at this issue overall, what's so remarkable is how little distinction there is between all the various copies and all the translations. That's a testimony to the authority of God to maintain the integrity of his word. And yet you will find discrepancies, small ones, none that dramatically alter any of our theology or of our understanding of Christ or any of the issues that bedrock our faith. But in small cases like this, they can create confusion. Now, somebody might look at this and say, well, here's proof that you can't trust the Bible. I would turn to you and say, no, the fact that I have a Septuagint is proof you can trust the Bible. Because I do have access to this. I do have this knowledge still being made available. There is still the opportunity to find the answers. It has not been lost. Now, when you look at this, you may be asking yourself, I don't get it, Steve. How does that solve the problem? Well, notice that it says that the period of the 430 years is a period that counts or includes all of the time that the people of the seed promise, the people who descend from Abraham, sojourned in both the land of Egypt and the land of Canaan. So the 430 years was completed when the sojourning ended. Well, when did the sojourning begin? The sojourning beginned. Beginned. <laughs> That's from the Septuagint, yes. It began when Abraham received the promise from God that he lived in a land that would one day be his. But in the meantime, he would wander in the land, his people would be oppressed, but after that, God would bring them out from their sojourning. So, the period of 430 years in Exodus 12 is the same period Paul is describing, but our English version cuts the description short just enough to mislead us concerning what it's describing. It's not describing the period they lived in Egypt. It's describing the period of sojourning, of being a wandering, strange people in the land, absent their own land. So let's look at our timeline again. Now we say that the Exodus 12 description was not merely the time in Egypt. It's the whole time. Half of it is Canaan. Half of it is Egypt. We still need to make sense of the Lord's statement in Genesis 15, which promises that Israel would be in a foreign land for 400 years. Now, how does that fit? Well, let's look at the verse again. God said to Abraham, know for certain that your descendants 
will be strangers. Your descendants will be enslaved. Your descendants will be oppressed 400 years. It's for his descendants that this time has been named, not for him. God said this is for your descendants. So when God says your descendants will be wanderers, the timeline can't start until there is a descendant. Well, it was 25 years before that promise went into effect. It was 25 years before Abraham had Isaac. And that happened 25 years after the statement was made. Now, what does 400 years refer to? Does it refer to how long they will be strangers? Does it refer to how long they were wanderers? Or that they were enslaved? Or that they were oppressed? Which one? Trick question. It's all of them. In Hebrew, the grammar of the sentence which doesn't come across to us in English as easily. The grammar of the sentence makes clear to the Hebrew reader that that 400 years modifies everything that comes before it in the sentence. So, in Genesis 15, God is saying to Abraham, first, note your descendants will experience this, and what they will experience in total will last 400 years. So, the 400 years ends when Israel leaves slavery in Egypt. That much we know, because they come out of Egypt ending this period. It goes back to the time Israel wandered in Canaan. In fact, if we put this on a chart, we'll anchor it here where we know it ends and we run it back 400 years. We just kind of end up floating there in the middle of Canaan. Abraham, Isaac and Jacob's wanderings were all a part of this time, this sojourning. We know from Scripture that we're told that this sojourning on their part was actually a measure of faith, a sign, an evidence of their faith. They chose, in other words, to live a nomadic lifestyle Not because that's who they were or that's their culture or that that was their history. In fact, they lived in a very urban lifestyle when they were in Ur. They were told to leave and be made into nomads, wanderers, as a way of demonstrating their faith in the promise God gave Abraham. The promise he gave to Abraham was you will be in a land that is not yours for 400 years. To show evidence that they believed that statement, they lived as wanderers demonstrating by their lifestyle that they made no claims to the land. That was their evidence of faith, Hebrews 11 tells us. But when we put the 400 years on the timeline and add the 25 years Abraham waited for Isaac's birth, okay, that solves the problem mostly. Where's that five? So where did the five come from? Well, first you have to remember that Abraham had two sons. Galatians 4 tells us this, for it is written that Abraham had two sons, one by the bondwoman and one by the free woman. But the son of the bondwoman was born according to the flesh and the son by the free woman through the promise. Now, which of these children are we using for our count? Well, I've already told you Isaac was born 25 years later. Ishmael was born, though, 13 years earlier. Ishmael was the firstborn, Isaac was the second, but we hear that God considered Isaac to be Abraham's heir. The one who would inherit this promise. Remember, all of these numbers we're talking about, they all came from a promise. God made a promise to Abraham concerning a period of time in which they would be wanderers. And then everything that's happened since that has been the result of that promise playing out. Who is to inherit the promise? Well, that was Isaac. Ishmael, we're told, would have no share in the inheritance of Abraham. So, from Abraham's point of view, the true descendant is unclear when he hears the words from God. And even after Isaac is born, when both of them lived in his household for a time, even then, it was unclear to Abraham 
who his descendant would be. Now, if he'd been listening more closely, he would have known. But his behavior and his own words tell us he didn't quite get it. And not right at first. It took a while. Paul tells us in Galatians 4.29, But at that time, he who was born according to the flesh, that's Ishmael, persecuted him who was born according to the spirit, that is Isaac. And so it is now also. But what does the scripture say? Cast out the bondwoman and her son, for the son of the bondwoman shall not be an heir with the son of the free woman. There was a distinction God made between the two. But the final moment in which God made utterly clear to Abraham that there was one and only one son who was going to be an heir to this promise, that moment came at a certain point in the lives of these children. There came a moment when Sarah felt the need to cast out this child for he was persecuting Isaac. And Abraham was at first reluctant to do it until God himself spoke to Abraham and said, no, do what Sarah is saying because she's right. You need to cast out the one who is not intended to be your heir. The occasion of this casting out, do you all know? When Isaac was weaned, weaning is, of course, the point at which a child stops relying on milk and starts eating regular food. That was the moment when Abraham finally learned that Isaac and only Isaac was to be his descendant according to the promise in Genesis 15. Genesis tells us about this moment in Genesis 21.8. The child grew, speaking of Isaac, and was weaned, and Abraham made a great feast on the day that Isaac was weaned. Now Sarah saw the son of Hagar the Egyptian, whom she had borne to Abraham, mocking. And therefore she said to Abraham, Drive out this maid and her son, for the son of the maid shall not be an heir with my son Isaac. The matter distressed Abraham greatly because of his son. But God said to Abraham, Do not be distressed because of the lad and your maid. Whatever Sarah tells you, listen to her, for through Isaac your descendants shall be named. Children were weaned in the ancient world, at age five, on the fifth birthday, specifically, not just at some point, but literally on the fifth birthday. And it was done in conjunction with a feast. It was a celebratory moment when your child got weaned. I'm sure the mom was first in line to celebrate when the child got weaned. Hooray, we're done with this. So it was on the occasion of the weaning of Isaac that the final determination was made for Abraham's sake that the son who would inherit the promise was not Ishmael, but it was, in fact, Isaac. At that moment, finally, we could put in the five years. So there was 25 years of waiting. There was five years of weaning. And then at that point, the statement God had made 30 years earlier, which was your descendants will be strangers and wanderers in a land for 400 years, came into effect. Because now, finally, from Abraham's point of view, he could know definitively who his descendant was. And from that moment, there was 400 years until the day that Israel left Egypt. And now we can perfectly reconcile all of the references in the timeline, fitting them perfectly. So to summarize, Abraham and his descendants wandered in Canaan for 215 years, and then they sojourned in Egypt for another 215 years. During the second period of 215, they were enslaved and they were oppressed. But after 430 years, God's promise to redeem Israel was fulfilled. In fact, Moses says it was exactly 430 years to the very day. To what day? To the day that God promised to Abraham. It was 430 years to the day that God fulfilled the very promise he gave to Abraham in Genesis 15. Such exactness, such perfection demonstrates God is careful in keeping his promises. He doesn't even round off the numbers. 
The Lord's uncompromising faithfulness is reflected in his perfect precision and timing. There's one more thing, though, to consider about the timing of this particular event. Moses says the nation left Egypt precisely on the same day as the day that God gave Abraham that promise, the Abrahamic covenant. We know the day Israel left Egypt, don't we? It was the 14th of Aviv, the 14th of Nisan. So that means that the Lord delivered his promise to Abraham on the 14th of Nisan or the 14th of Aviv, the future day of Passover. And now consider what the promise said. The promise was to free Israel from bondage in Egypt. But it also included, we know from last week now, we know that that promise also prophetically looked forward to the day that the Lord would bring the seed. And Paul told us in Galatians, not seeds, but seed, so as to refer to Christ. He would bring the seed through Abraham to bless all the nations in the world. Paul tells us in Galatians, that was the ultimate aim of that promise delivered to Abraham on the day of Passover. So these promises were spoken on the day that would become Passover. And those promises are fulfilled on not only the Passover day of Egypt, but the fulfillment of Jesus, our Passover lamb, also occurred on the 14th of Nisan in the day he was crucified. So the promise was given on the 14th and fulfilled in its lesser form and its greater form on exactly the same day of the calendar in different years. God's sovereignty and his precision are stunning and they should be for us a bolster to our faith. If God can work like this over eons of time, can he not work in our own lives in a daily way? Finally, the Lord reminds Israel of the sanctity of the Passover celebration. So let's turn now from that topic and turn back into the text, Exodus 12:42, the sanctity of the Passover celebration, which we studied the celebration last week, but God has some more things to say about it. Now, verse 42, it is a night to be observed, speaking of the Passover, it is a night to be observed for the Lord, for having brought them out from the land of Egypt. This night is for the Lord to be observed by all the sons of Israel throughout their generations. The Lord said to Moses and Aaron, this is the ordinance of the Passover. No foreigner is to eat of it, but every man's slave purchased with money after you have circumcised him, then he may eat of it. A sojourner or a hired servant shall not eat of it. It is to be eaten in a single house. You are not to bring forth any of the flesh outside of the house, nor are you to break any bone of it. All the congregation of Israel are to celebrate this. But if a stranger sojourns with you and celebrates the Passover to the Lord, let all his males be circumcised and let him come near to celebrate it. And he shall be like a native of the land, but no uncircumcised person may eat of it. The same law shall apply to the native as to the stranger who sojourns among you. Then all the sons of Israel did so. They did just as the Lord had commanded Moses and Aaron. And on that same day, the Lord brought the sons of Israel out of the land of Egypt by their hosts. So forevermore, the nation is to observe the night of Passover as a memorial to the work of God in fulfilling his promise. This is the memory that the Lord wants Israel to have from this time in Egypt forward in their history. This is the memory he wants them to have. There's been 430 years since the promise was spoken of all the 430 years, all the events that have transpired in that 430 years, all of the things Israel has seen through all that time, all that they've suffered, the thing the Lord wants them to remember out of all of that 430 years is God's faithfulness to keep his promise and to pass over Israel in bringing them out of bondage. That is the moment he wants them to remember. 
This is, by the way, yet another parallel to the last days of tribulation. As a reminder, you know, we've studied the way the whole Exodus pictures God's delivery of Israel out of the tribulation judgments and brings them into the messianic kingdom, glorified and saved. Well, this is another element of showing that or of paralleling that the ultimate thing the nation will remember once they come into the new world, the new kingdom of Christ, will be their memory of their Passover, that is, of Jesus. At that point, the only memory that the nation is going to carry is the memory of the Lord's redemption, the Passover again. They're not going to remember their years of wandering as exiles scattered into the nations, which is the way that many of them have existed, of course, throughout the centuries and still do in some cases today. They're not going to remember the years of opposition at the hands of anti-Semites, of Hitler, of Rome, of the Turks, of the Arabs. They're not going to remember any of that, we're told in Scripture. Their only memory will be of Christ as their Passover. Isaiah 65:16 we're told this because he who is blessed in the earth will be blessed by the god of truth and he who swears in the earth will swear by the god of truth because and this is all speaking of Israel because the former troubles are forgotten because they are hidden from my spirit for behold I create new heavens and a new earth and the former things will not be remembered or come to mind but be glad and rejoice forever in what I create For behold, I create Jerusalem for rejoicing and her people for gladness. I will also rejoice in Jerusalem and be glad in my people. And there will no longer be heard in her the voice of weeping and the sound of crying. So for all that they have gone through, their memories will not include anything but the joy of being in Jerusalem with their Lord. And this is echoed here by the way that forevermore what your memory of the Exodus should be is the Passover. And, you know, of all the things that Jews will do, the secular Jew, the one who's not believing, the one who has no real interest in religion at all, the one thing they'll always do every year is Passover. They don't do Rosh Hashanah. They don't do Yom Kippur. They don't do Hanukkah necessarily. They don't do anything else that has any meaning spiritually. But they all find a way to get into somebody's home on Passover and do a Passover. It's the one thing that seems to unite all Jews every year out of ritual, if nothing else. And it's interesting that that's the one memory that is persistent within the people of Israel beyond anything else. And they are not sitting in that moment every year that it happens, remembering the slavery. They're not sitting in that remembering the wanderings. They're only remembering the exodus. And that is God's promise to them, the one memory he wanted them to have. Now, the Lord commands here that the only ones who could truly be a part of this celebration are those who are truly a part of Israel. Foreigners have to become part of Israel by circumcision in order to be able to join in this feast. If they've not adopted the sign of the covenant, then they may not enjoy the fellowship of that covenant. The sign of the Abrahamic covenant is circumcision for males, while the Passover is a memorial of that same covenant, right? It's all stemming from that same promise. So if the promise given to Abraham is memorialized by the Passover, then the only one who should be able to participate in that memorial are people who are in that covenant. And the sign of being in the covenant was having taken circumcision. So a person that's not taken the sign is not free to participate in the memorial. Notice in verse 49, that rule applied equally to both native Jews. Native refers to a true Jew born of Abraham, as well as strangers who have become Jew. Women were always, by the way, under the spiritual authority of a man, whether it was their father, an uncle, a brother, a husband. And so if the man that had headship over the woman was circumcised, 
then all women under his spiritual authority were likewise included in the covenant. That's how women became part of it. They had to be a part of it through the man who had the spiritual authority. You know that our new covenant in Christ follows a very similar test or should. The sign of our covenant is different. The sign of the new covenant in Christ is water baptism. Water baptism is the sign of a circumcision that's taken place in our heart by the Holy Spirit. And what is our memorial to God's faithfulness to that covenant? It's the Lord's Supper. The only two ordinances that are given to the New Testament believer are connected in that regard. One is the sign of the covenant. One is the memorial of its fulfillment in Christ's death on the cross. And we've been given this meal, this memorial, as a way of remembering the Lord's faithfulness to his covenant when he died in our place on the cross, right? Well, if you have not been water baptized, even if you are a believer in your heart, if you've not been water baptized, then you should not participate in the communion meal. Because one is a memorial to covenant, and if you have not taken on the sign of the covenant, then you really have no part to play in the communion. And I've heard of a number of churches that follow that, that interpretation, and I think they're right to do it. They encourage any believer to participate in the communion meal so long as they have taken on the sign of the covenant. And it begs a good question. If you are interested in taking part in the memorial, why have you not submitted then to the sign that is of the same covenant? Why memorialize a covenant that you don't have enough respect in to actually obey? Because that's what water baptism is, the first step of obedience that every Christian is called to. So before the nation begins their dash here across the desert, chapter 12 finishes off the importance of the memorial and of the need to observe it a certain way within the nation of Israel. And chapter 13 is a few more commands associated with the Passover observance, but they go in a new direction here. So for the remainder of tonight, we want to try to cover not all, but a good chunk of chapter 13. We're going to break it at the point where it starts to talk about the actual exodus, because we're going to save that until next week. But today we're going to get all the way up to that moment. So let's go to verse 1 through 10 just to start the chapter. Then the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Sanctify to me every firstborn, the first offspring of every womb among the sons of Israel, both man and beast. It belongs to me. Moses said to the people, Remember this day in which you went out from Egypt, from the house of slavery? For by a powerful hand the Lord brought you out from this place, and nothing leavened shall be eaten. On this day, in the month of Aviv, you are about to go forth. It shall be when the Lord brings you to the land of the Canaanite, the Hittite, the Amorite, the Hivite, and the Jebusite, which he swore to your fathers to give you, a land flowing with milk and honey, that you shall observe this rite in this month. For seven days you shall eat unleavened bread, and on the seventh day there shall be a feast to the Lord. Unleavened bread shall be eaten throughout the seven days, and nothing leavened shall be seen among you, nor shall any leaven be seen among you in all your borders. You shall tell your son on that day, saying, It is because of the way the Lord did for me when I came out of Egypt. And it shall serve as a sign to you on your hand and as a reminder on your forehead that the law of the Lord may be in your mouth. For with a powerful hand the Lord brought you out of Egypt. Therefore you shall keep this ordinance at its appointed time from year to year. So the Passover memorial also includes this requirement that Israel sanctify, or to say it differently, set apart the firstborn of every womb, whether a man or a beast. The requirement was limited, though, to the sons of Israel. This is not a requirement for Gentiles, certainly. Not before Christ's coming, certainly not in the church. 
But it was a commandment to specifically the nation of Israel. It's in line with the earlier statement that he said only those who are part of Israel can participate in the Passover celebration. Likewise, only those who are circumcised and part of Israel would have to sanctify or set apart their firstborn. The requirement is tied to the redemption of Israel by the Lord in the sense that it is tied to that firstborn who is preserved during the Passover. That's the connection which we can all see easily enough. The Lord's going to give more explanation for this requirement later in the chapter, but we'll leave it there for now. He said, first, he reiterates the importance of observing the restrictions on leaven. Now, this also ties back to what we studied last week on the leaven, on its association to the Passover and to Christ. Also to why there are seven days of this festival immediately following the one day of the Passover. That's because it will take exactly seven days for Israel to walk to the Red Sea. It's day and night. They walk 24 hours a day for seven days. Now, that's obviously a supernaturally enabled seven days. But then again, if you haven't already noticed, there's a lot of supernatural stuff that's about to happen in this book. And that's just one of them. That seven day period was so much on the run that there was no possibility that they could ever stop and prepare a meal, much less let bread rise. So they subsisted for seven days on unleavened baked bread. You and I would call crackers. And God permitted them to survive on that through the Exodus time. The Feast of Unleavened Bread remembers that or memorializes that. And here he is repeating why that is so important to him. He wants to create a picture here of their reliance on God in that day. But then leaven being a picture of sin, it transforms into a picture of the believer walking without sin, having been called out in faith, having received their Passover in Messiah in Christ. Finally, the Lord says this memorial is to occur annually on exactly the same time every year so that no one in Israel will ever forget the work of the Lord in keeping his word. In fact, the repeating of this memorial results in the nation of Israel declaring the law of the Lord every year, he says. That's a really interesting phrase. They will repeat the law of the Lord every year. What is the law referencing it can't be referencing the entire Mosaic law because it's not a part of this Passover celebration to sit down and recite the entire law. But yet he says this is a law that will be repeated. What is the law? The law is a reference to the word of God in general, to his promises, to his faithfulness, to what he said to Abraham. It is all law in the sense that it all is God's pronouncements. His unchangeable word is the law. And so while Israel will be remembering an event in their past, every year they celebrate this, they're remembering, they're memorializing an event in their past. What are they also doing? Unbeknownst to many of them, frankly, they are declaring prophetically the work of Christ. They are speaking the law of God in Christ. The law being that you must submit to the work of Christ on the cross or else Receive the penalty for your own sin. That's the ultimate law of Scripture. That there is judgment for sin, but there is mercy available in the grace found in Christ. That's the law of the gospel. And that law is being preached by people who, in many cases, don't even know it themselves. But by the repeating of the Passover, they preach this law. Here we see a powerful example of how God works through memorials and through observances, or you might even argue through some liturgy or through some ceremony or ritual, he gives us ordinances, he gives us memorials to ensure, first, that we never forget his promises and his faithfulness to those promises. Secondly, he wants us to declare the law. 
and the law being a reference here to the word of God concerning the truth of the gospel. And he is prescribing certain rituals, certain practices. When we practice, for example, the ordinances of the New Testament church, that being the Lord's Supper and baptism, we must follow the pattern prescribed by the Lord in his word. Just as Israel was told, do this exactly the way I taught you, do it every year, exactly on the right day. That was their prescription. We have ours. We are not free to modify or experiment with these ordinances. As modeled by Paul in 1 Corinthians 11, who himself was trying to reset the behavior of a church in Corinth who had started to vary from that. So Paul's writing in 1 Corinthians was all about saying, hey, we have a way to do this. Christ himself prescribed this. So while some of us may like the idea that in liberty we can adjust and vary the way we worship or the way we practice our faith, and that is true, there are some things in which the prescription is the point. The method has reason behind it that God himself has prescribed and we must honor it because it is a memorial designed to preach the law of God, not our version of it or our thoughts of it. I've seen people who like to take the communion meal and make it a little more celebratory, make it a little more relaxed. I understand the thought behind it, but it's taken the memorial and turned it to something other than what it was intended to be. Even if we approach it with the most pious of heart it's still not serving its purpose if we're not declaring the law of God by virtue of declaring what it's meant to mean. So we are called to preach the Lord's word in all its forms so that the Lord will be seen and glorified through it. And one of the forms in which the law of God is proclaimed is through the ordinances were given. The one of the giving of baptism and the one of giving of the Lord's Supper. And what is the prescription, by the way, for baptism? How is it prescribed in a certain way? There's also something we do in conjunction with the immersion. I baptize you in the name of Father, and Son, and Holy Spirit. There is a prescription there. That's the law of God being proclaimed. What's being proclaimed in that? The work of the Trinity in your salvation. God the Father predestined. God the Spirit calls and opens the heart. God the Son died on the cross to make it all possible. So the Lord is given this prescription to the nation of Israel for how to observe this, reminded them of its importance. Now he gives them some additional explanation for why that firstborn will be consecrated. Verse 11. Now, when the Lord brings you to the land of the Canaanite, as he swore to you and to your fathers and gives it to you, you shall devote to the Lord the first offspring of every womb and the first offspring of every beast that you own. The males belong to the Lord and every first offspring of a donkey you shall redeem with a lamb. But if you do not redeem it, then you shall break its neck and every firstborn of man among your sons you shall redeem. Now, fathers, if you have a teenage boy that's exasperating you a little bit, I just want to make the point here that the son's neck is never to be broken. It's only the donkey. All right, the Lord points forward here to years when Israel will spend their life living in the land of Canaan in keeping with his promise. So he's looking forward from this moment. And when they reach that point, he says the nation needs to devote the firstborn male of every womb, that means of every mother, of course, to the Lord. However, the consecrated animal must be clean, or you might say kosher. So this firstborn male has to be a kosher animal because it's going to be sacrificed. That's what it means to set the animal apart. Basically, to put it simply, the firstborn male is always killed from every animal in a sacrificial way. But if that animal is not a clean animal, and a good example of that is donkeys, they're not considered clean, they're not kosher, you do not sacrifice to the Lord an unclean animal. The donkey here is representative of that class of animals, but it would have been understood the donkey here just stands for them. 
when you have an unclean animal, you're to substitute a clean animal in their place. So a clean animal would be, for example, a lamb, a substitute for them. If there's no lamb to substitute, then the donkey's life would be taken by breaking its neck. In other words, it would be killed, but not sacrificed. God has given Israel clear illustration of substitutionary atonement through this practice. He is teaching that God only accepts perfect, clean, sinless sacrifices. He accepts nothing less. If we are unclean, that is, if we are sinful, then we are not acceptable before God. But a clean, sinless substitute can be sacrificed in our place. If we do not accept that sinless sacrifice, on the other hand, if we do not accept the substitute that is made available to us, then we will die for the sake of our own sin. That's the essence of the gospel. Since we are sinful, we cannot please God in and of ourselves, and we are under the penalty of death that sin deserves. Since Christ was sinless, he can be an acceptable sacrifice to God in our place to satisfy God's wrath against sin. So you have a choice, as Scripture would lay it out. We have the choice to accept that substitute as the lamb in the case of the donkey or Christ in the case of us. And if so, we are spared and he dies in our place and God will accept him. If we are not willing to take that substitute in our place, then we die for our own sin. We die the second death of eternal separation from God. That's the gospel. In one verse, talking about donkeys and lambs. Now, in verse 14, we come to understand why God wants the firstborn animals killed in this way. And it will explain why the Lord took the firstborn of every animal in Egypt during the Passover which we talked about then, but didn't answer. Why did the Passover judgment on Egypt kill not only the firstborn of man, but also the firstborn of beasts? Here's where you get your connection. Verse 14. It shall be when your son asks you in time to come saying, what is this? Then you shall say to him, with a powerful hand, the Lord brought us out of Egypt from the house of slavery. It came about when Pharaoh was stubborn about letting us go that the Lord killed every firstborn in the land of Egypt, both the firstborn of man and the firstborn of beast. Therefore, I sacrifice to the Lord the males, the first offspring of every womb, but every firstborn of my sons I redeem. So it shall serve as a sign on your hand and as phylacteries on your forehead, for with a powerful hand the Lord brought us out of Egypt." So let me explain to you what he just said. The Lord expects that the sons in every generation will at some point ask the obvious question of their dad. Why do we take the firstborn male of all these animals and kill them and sacrifice them to the Lord, to God? And in the judgment of the Passover, going back to Egypt, the Lord killed both the firstborn of animal and the firstborn of men. But he spared both in Israel. He killed neither animal nor man, of course, in the nation of Israel. Now, in Israel, they are taking the male animals and the male children, firstborns, and consecrating them, making them gods. God owns them, spiritually speaking, and they are therefore set apart, and that reminds us of the Exodus. But children, being observant and being bright, are going to question, why are you only killing some of us? You're memorializing an act in which both men and animals died, But now we only kill the animals. Certainly the son doesn't want to be killed. And obviously the Lord never permits nor 
desires human sacrifice. So he says to Israel, this is the answer you give your sons when they notice the difference here. The Lord tells Israel to answer the question by saying that this is a reminder of the way the Lord brought us out of Egypt. When Pharaoh stubbornly refused to let us go, the Lord killed every firstborn in the land, both man and beast. And that's how Israel was spared. So now, son, we set apart both the firstborn of male animals and the firstborn of people, boys. The animals are killed and sacrificed to represent the judgment against Egypt, while the boys are redeemed or spared to represent God's passing over of Israel. That's why animals were included in the judgment against Egypt. They provide the opportunity to memorialize the event, the death of the event, through animal sacrifice. Clearly, the Lord wants to memorialize the event. He couldn't possibly expect that the memorializing of the event would include the killing of young sons. That's not what God would expect, of course. So the animals became a memorial of the death that happened in the Passover. While the firstborn children are picturing the way the Lord spared Israel, so the sons become those who are redeemed. They represent mercy shown to Israel. So both God's judgment and His mercy are illustrated through this memorial. Now, in this explanation, you have a foreshadowing of the entire sacrificial system, which we will study as we get into that portion of the book of Exodus. When we get to the mountain and the giving of the law and we look at some of the details in the law, we're going to see the sacrificial system explained. And the sacrificial system of the law uses animals in various ways, various sacrifices, to picture judgment and the penalty for sin, as well as the redemption that's offered through substitutionary atonement. But none of those sacrifices provide for the actual atoning work of God, the actual covering of sin. God just uses animals because human sacrifice is murder and he's not in the business of murdering people to make his point. But he wants to present to men a clear picture of the redeeming work of Christ. Therefore, animals become a means to creating that picture. They are living creatures with blood that can experience death. And as such, they serve as a suitable picture for our sakes. They serve as an illustration. Hebrews tells us the blood of bulls and goats cannot remit for sin. So there's no attempt by those sacrifices to actually deal with the problem of sin. They point forward to the real solution. Now the Exodus is ready to begin. Exodus 13:17. Now, when Pharaoh had let the people go, God did not lead them by the way of the land of the Philistines, even though it was near. For God said the people might change their minds when they see war and return to Egypt. Hence, God set the pe- sent I'm sorry, God led the people around by the way of the wilderness to the Red Sea. And the sons of Israel went up in martial array from the land of Egypt. Moses took the bones of Joseph with him, for he had made the sons of Israel solemnly swear, saying, God will surely take care of you and you shall carry my bones from here with you. Then they set out from Succoth and camped in Etham on the edge of the wilderness. The Lord was going before them in a pillar of cloud by day, to lead them on the way and in a pillar of fire by night to give them light that they may travel by day and by night. He did not take away the pillar of cloud by day, nor the pillar of fire by night from before the people. Moses says he routes them not straight north, as you might expect, if the point is to simply get them into Canaan. From where they sit in Succoth, they go to Etham and then you would have thought, why not just head straight to the target? Well, that would have put you right into the land of the Philistines. 
Ashkelon, Ashdod, Ekron, those are all Philistine city-states. They were warring people. They were a very ruthless people. It would have been a hard fight. Now, not that God wasn't powerful enough to deal with it. He was just worried that people wouldn't stand there long enough to see him win. They would just turn and run back to Egypt. And you know from the story of the Exodus probably already, they were inclined to do that at any moment all the time. So it's probably a good bet. Instead, the Lord leads them, we're told, by way of the wilderness. So he takes them by way of the wilderness, first to Etham, and then we'll cover next week where they go from there. But it's, it's in this direction, out into the wilderness. The journey is going to eventually end up at the Red Sea. Now, just to make clear for your sake, this is the Red Sea. It's not just the left side, it's both sides are part of the Red Sea. We'll come back to that next week. And they are leaving Egypt. In fact, we're going to read in several places in the story that they go out of Egypt, out of Egypt. And when we actually see them encamped at the mountain Sinai, they're said to be out of Egypt. Well, if I look at what was considered Egypt generally in that day, this is Egypt. They had limited control into the Sinai Peninsula. Some have drawn this all the way through the full Sinai Peninsula. In fact, today, who owns the Sinai Peninsula? Egypt. So it's long been considered part of Egypt. Historically, it's always been part of Egypt. Their degree of control over it varied from from century to century, but it's always been part of Egypt. And yet they're out of Egypt when they're at the mountain and when they are receiving the law after they've crossed a Red Sea. So we're going to look at what that means for the crossing in the next week to two. And as we study that, we're going to follow the biblical commentary very carefully. We're going to watch that video that I mentioned. Finally, Just to end tonight, we hear Moses carries Joseph's bones. Joseph was not left behind in Egypt, but he was carried with the nation and buried eventually in the promised land. This was done because Joseph made the nation of Israel swear to him before he died that they would do that for him. The fact that he required such a promise is evidence to us that Joseph believed the word given to Abraham in Genesis 15, that one day they would be taken out from that oppression and from that slavery. In fact, he knew the year it would happen. When the Lord spoke to Abraham, he promised this. Joseph believed it. And Hebrews 11:22 says, By faith, Joseph, when he was dying, made mention of the exodus of the sons of Israel and gave orders concerning his bones. Next week, we begin the study of the exodus. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Heavenly Father, thank you for the wonderful mysteries of your word, for the clarifying truth of the Spirit who can reveal all things in his good timing. Thank you for hearts that care to know these things and may be built up by them. May we all, Father, be good witnesses and ambassadors of what we learn. Let us take what we know and put it to work in building your kingdom for the days are short. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.